Now, loving a stranger, that's one thing, but loving family is something else altogether. The fact is, the closer a person is, the harder it is to love them. And while times such as this have brought immediate family members closer together in every sense of the word, they have also moved brothers and sisters further apart. And as the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. So how are you going, loving your church family at this time? Are you encouraging each other? Are you praying for one another? Have you been, if possible and God willing, sharing a meal or going for a walk? What does it even look like to love one another in times such as this? What about even when trouble strikes, as it often does when people draw closer together? Back in chapter 1, Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. It seems that the Ephesian churches were known for their love towards each other. Is that a reputation the church in Melbourne shares? That this church shares? How do we live lives of love? Well, God commands and exhorts each one of us today, men and women, children, employed, not employed, single, married, divorced, irrespective of your status, gender or race in this life, God says, imitate me, walk in the way of love. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Uh, Gracious God, your word is useful for correcting, rebuking, and training us in righteousness. We pray today that you would do so. We pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak just your word. Amen. Well, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, we've been plucked out and chosen to be God's very own children. We've been purchased back by the blood of Jesus. All our sins have been wiped off our record, never to be held against us again. We've been resurrected from death to life because of God's great love for us. By grace, we've been saved for good works, which God has prepared for us already. Even though we're outsiders, we now have access to our Heavenly Father because Jesus made peace by his death. We Christians are a new humanity, reconciled not just to God, but to one another. We are God's dwelling place, his people, full members of his family. We're living proof of the mystery, Paul proclaims. Paul's prayed that we would grasp and would know this love of Christ. And Christ has graciously even given gifted people to prepare us for service that his body might grow in love. This is but a sampling of what Paul wants you to remember when in chapter 1, chapter 5, verse 1, he calls you, 
dearly loved children. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And an older, more literal translation, which I will use, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How do we walk in the way of love? Well, first and foremost, it's by being loved. That's who you are if you call Jesus Lord, a dearly loved child. God commands us here and uh, to love each other as dearly loved children. It's a timely reminder that God's love for us in Jesus forms the motivation to love. We love because he first loved us. And the model for love, we love like him, sacrificially. You cannot continue to love your brothers and sisters in Christ or anyone else without receiving each day afresh the love of God poured out into your heart. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remembering that we are dearly loved children humbles us when we think too highly of ourselves and become puffed up. That though we were dead in sin, following the ways of the world, under the control of Satan and objects of God's just anger, God in love predestined us for adoption. Nothing we did, are doing or will do will make us dearly loved children. God in Jesus did it all. Remembering that we are dearly loved children exalts us too when we think too lowly of ourselves and feel guilt, that though we were separate from Christ, alienated from God, excluded from God's people, without hope and far away, God in Christ, because of his great love and rich mercy, graciously brought us near. He made us alive and raised us up so that we are now seated in Christ in heaven. Nothing we did, are doing now, or will do, will make us more loved than we already are. So as we begin to flesh out what it looks like, to love each other as beloved children. Rebuke your heart if it says, I'm such a great lover of my brothers and sisters. Or if it says, I'll never be able to love others well. Rebuke it. Remind your heart of its state before you believed and that each day you pray that it might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that it might know his love. As a dearly loved child already and forevermore, 
act like your heavenly father and walk in the way of love. Here's how. Four points. Number one, love with truthful upbuilding speech. 4.25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. And 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Well, when it came to their speech, the Ephesians, before they became Christians, were completely in the dark. Verse 19 says that they had given themselves over, indulging in every impure behavior. Both the content and the manner of their words reflected a hard heart. Remember what Jesus said? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And don't forget, as Jesus said, each person will have to answer for every careless word spoken. But thanks be to God, the Ephesians came to know Christ, were forgiven and made new. Paul taught them, along with Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Timothy, and no doubt others, that the new person they are needs new clothing too. They were taught to put off old fashions of speaking and put on new ones that match the new person they are. This new person is to be fashioned like God, righteous and holy, as Paul says in verse 24. That means what they say and the way they say it should be just like God. And at the top of the list is that they should love one another by speaking the truth. After all, God does not lie. Both the content and manner of God's words do not act to deceive. He speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's why the good news about Jesus is called in chapter 1, the word of truth. It stands in contrast to false teaching, which Paul describes as cunning, crafty, and deceitful, and their pre-Christian nature, which is corrupted and full of deceitful desires. Christians must speak the truth because we are members of one body. As Paul just said in chapter 4, there is only one body made up of every person that has believed the gospel. Jesus is the head, the, sorry, Jesus is the head. He holds all the bits together and causes it to grow up into maturity. Deceptive words or ways of communicating with each other undermine unity and diminish growth. In short, deceptive speech destroys trust while speaking the truth builds it. So speak the truth to each other, the whole truth 
and nothing but the truth. Be clear and completely transparent in your speech. Give a fair and accurate accurate portrayal of yourself and others in the best possible light. And don't exaggerate or embellish the facts. Little white lies are just that, lies. Ask yourself, is what I said entirely true? In addition to speaking truthfully, Paul says that we are to imitate God to love each other by speaking words that build up and impart grace to the one who hears. Remember in chapter 2, Paul calls us a holy temple where God lives. Jesus is at the center spot and this building held together by him is constantly being renovated and expanded upon. Here the content of our words play a part in its expansion. Rotten words like swearing, foolish talk and coarse joking are not constructive. Critical words, judgmental words, unkind words, insults, ridicule, slander and gossip demolish and tear down others. And that's just my own personal list. I'm sure you can add a few too. A well-timed, generous, gentle and kind word breathes life into a person just like when God speaks. Uh, A few weeks back, I went for a run, as is my custom. I wasn't feeling particularly enthusiastic, but I went anyway. My legs felt heavy and sluggish, and I wasn't really all that happy with my performance. And, well, I'd resolved just to make it to the end. Just before I reached halfway, I thought to myself, perhaps you should just stop and walk. And then, by the kindness of God, two cyclists on separate occasions each said something to me. Good pace. Good pace, they mentioned as they rode by. Just two little words that brought me back to life and renewed my zeal. I lifted my head and ran home even faster than before. Proverbs 12.18 says that reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I wonder what opportunities God has prepared for you this very day to do good with your words. Make every effort today, every day, to rid yourself of useless, unloving, untruthful speech which causes God grief. Ask yourself, is it true? Is it kind? Is it needful? Is it upbuilding? Take the initiative and make the effort. Say something to each other in person, over the phone, over Zoom, in a message, or in a letter even, that puts life into a person, that spurs your brother or sister on, to keep trusting Jesus and to please him more. Say something that lifts a person's eyes to Jesus and helps them run to the end.
imitate God and live a life of love. Brothers and sisters, love with truthful, upbuilding speech. How else do we walk in the way of love? Well, number two, love with sinless, uh, with sinless anger. Uh, 4.31 reads, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And 4.26, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Well, when it came to their anger, the Ephesians were completely in the dark before they believed the gospel message. They had given themselves over to a do-what-feels-good lifestyle with zero thought for God. Their lack of self-control over their anger no doubt expressed itself outwardly in verbal and physical abuse, but also inwardly in bitterness and resentment. Don't forget it was in Ephesus that an angry mob of disgruntled idol makers violently seized Paul's companion and stirred the whole city to riot. But thanks be to God, many people in Ephesus and its surrounds responded in faith and repentance to Paul's preaching of the cross. Their darkened, calloused hearts were replaced and enlightened by the light of the world. Now, as a new humanity, they were taught to put off sinful fashions of anger and to put on anger which is like God's, righteous and holy. Be angry, but don't sin, says Paul, quoting Psalm 4. Anger like God's arises from an accurate perception of true evil. God's anger at evil, wickedness and injustice tells us that something is truly wrong. It is right for God to be angry at sin. His anger doesn't arise from frustration or unfulfilled selfish desires. God isn't angry in spite of love. God is angry at sin because God is love. Do you get angry over sin? What about your own sin? So in dependence on God, ask for his help to understand yourself. Why am I angry might be a question to ponder with God. God's anger is also controlled. He doesn't lose the plot in a fit of rage and overpunish wrongdoing. He doesn't carelessly blurt out slanderous words in retaliation. Time and time again, his anger towards the Israelites is measured and patient. He is slow to get angry, inviting again and again the objects of his wrath to change their ways before it's too late. Have I been quick to get angry? Again, God's anger doesn't inwardly brood and fester in hidden, in hidden bitterness, does it? When God is angry, he expresses it openly and clearly in words we can understand 
as we will soon see in Ezekiel. Again, says Paul, sorry, anger, says Paul, must be dealt with and resolved immediately, lest it give the devil an opportunity. While the sun is still up, which is why difficult conversations of an evening are not a good idea. They leave no time for anger to subside and the issues to be talked through calmly. A flaming arrow flung from the devil into an angry heart can ignite a whole family against each other, a whole congregation set ablaze and destroyed. Think of the anger of uh, Cain left unattended that resulted in the murder of his own brother and caused him much grief. Or remember the jealous anger of Joseph's brothers that festered and resulted in so much suffering for the whole family. Or again, the hidden fury of Simeon and Levi that resulted in the slaughter of an entire village. Learn from their mistakes. Do not sin in your anger and grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not leave your anger unresolved and give the devil an opportunity. As James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Like an infection, anger left unchecked spreads throughout the body. Jerry Bridges, one Christian author, gives three steps to nip anger in the bud. Three, number one, look to the sovereignty of God. For what purpose has God brought these circumstances about? To make you more like Jesus in some way, perhaps? He always intends good. Number two, pray that God would grow us in love towards our brothers and sisters. Not easy when you're angry. And number three, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. We'll flesh this out more in a moment. So brothers and sisters, imitate God and walk in the way of love. Love each other with sinless anger. Number three, love one another, love with hardworking generosity. Uh, 4.28 reads, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Uh, before the Ephesians were redeemed and forgiven by the richness of God's grace, some of them at least, if not all, were lazy thieves. Remember that they were in the dark, ignorant, hard-hearted, and had given themselves over indulging in every impure act with only a taste for more. Sponging off others, taking particularly money or food which didn't belong to them without the owner's permission, not earning their keep was just a way of life. This behavior was particularly widespread, uh, especially among slaves, of which there were many Christians. Take, for example, Paul's instructions to slaves in the book of Titus. Teach slaves 
to be subjects, to, subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. But in accordance with the outworking of God's plan, some of the Ephesians were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. And by the inward working of the Holy Spirit, Jesus taught them to rid this old fashion of stealing and laziness and replace it with an honest, hard-working attitude and outlook in life. Like Omnisimus, Philemon's slaves, they were useless, but because of the gospel are now useful. They were saved by works, sorry, they were not saved by works, but for good works. And it is those good works which Paul says are to be done with their own hands. Do something useful with your own hands. Paul tells them to do now what he did for the three years when he lived with them. Hear what Paul says about his own conduct while he was there in Acts chapter 20. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed, but showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When it came to loving others in general, and in particular his brothers and sisters, Paul imitated God by working hard. Whether he was working alongside Priscilla and Aquila as a leather worker, repairing or making tents with his hands, or whether he was down the synagogue or marketplace telling people about Jesus, Paul worked hard for the Lord night and day he tells the Thessalonians. He wasn't idle, freeloading of others' kindness. As he said elsewhere, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. With the money he earned, he supported not only himself, but his companions as well. He also contributed to the needs of the poor, of those who were unable to pay their way. Despite his rights as an apostle to receive income from those he ministered to, Paul renounced his entitlements and chose to set an example of hard physical work accompanied by rich generosity. This expectation, by the way, is commanded of all believers. Elsewhere, Paul commands uh, young men and women, widows, younger and older, and slaves to be busy working hard to please Jesus within the context God has placed them. Elsewhere, the motivation could be to win the respect of outsiders, but here in Ephesians 4, it's love towards your brothers and sisters. It's not loving to take things unnecessarily, money, property, or anything that doesn't belong to you and that you haven't worked for. It's unloving to unnecessarily burden others. It's loving to earn a living and provide for your own family. 
It's loving to share with those among us that are unable to support themselves. Uh, I was uh, a single parent for many years, three sons, two jobs. Time and time again, I was shaking the piggy bank, so to speak, unsure where the money was coming from for the rates or school fees that were just around the corner. But by the kindness of God, I was again and again dearly loved by the generosity of others and other brothers and sisters who imitated God by working hard and sharing with a meal, with vouchers for the supermarket, with a holiday. Yes, one brother and sister paid for our holiday with lodging, with the payment of a bill, with a food hamper, with clothes, with free kid sitting. I don't know your life, circumstances and capacity, but is your life characterised by hard work and generosity like Paul's? Are you a student? Work hard so that you might at some point in the future have something to share with those in need. Are you at home, retired or with kids? Work hard to provide for your family. Mentor a younger believer. Offer hospitality to those who are in need. Are you unable, not unwilling, but unable to provide for yourself for some reason? Well, that's okay. The Lord appoints such times for our good. Work hard within your capacity. Give thanks to God for the generosity of others, either within your own family or in the broader church family that can care for your needs. Imitate God and walk in the way of love. Love your brothers and sisters with hard-working generosity. And finally, how else should we walk in the way of love? Number four, love with relational charity. 432, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, sorry, just as God in Christ forgave you. Before the Ephesian saints were forgiven, their relationship, their relationships were a mess, separated from the life of God, lost in the darkness of their own thinking, hardened on the inside. They had completely indulged in every kind of impurity with an appetite for more. Following the ways of the world, they gratified the cravings of their sinful nature. Their mouths spoke unkind, harsh words. They harbored unresolved anger, which turned them bitter to others. They stole and sponged off others as well. But then Jesus, by his death on the cross, abolished the demands of the law, making a new humanity made up of all sorts of people from different walks of life. Having made peace, Jesus preached peace through his disciples to the near and far. Peace with God and peace with each other. Reconciliation regardless of a person's status in this life. Some in Ephesus took hold of and put their faith in Jesus. They were taught that this new relationship with Jesus meant a new family, that Jesus' family looked different 
than what they've previously known. It's characterized by mutual, sacrificial love in their everyday relationships and interactions with each other. It's no longer okay just to say what you want without thinking about others. It's no longer okay to vent your anger without thinking about others. It's no longer okay to take what you want without thinking about others. And it's no longer okay to hold on to what you have without thinking about others. But the fact is, at times, the Ephesian Christians got it wrong. And it's to that situation Paul now instructs them to be kind, compassionate and forgiving to each other as God in Christ forgave you. So how did God in Christ forgive them? Well, Paul says back in chapter 1 that by our union with Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The penalty of our willful disobedience and rebellion, namely God's anger, fell on Jesus. His blood was shed on the cross instead of ours. Here, forgiveness stands alongside redemption. We were pardoned and purchased by his blood once and for all. By putting forward his son as a sacrifice and at his own cost, leveling the debt which stood against us, God demonstrated both the richness of his grace as well as his extravagant kindness. God's forgiveness offered in the gospel is undeserved, free, generous, wholehearted, eager and kind. If you're yet to receive such forgiveness, the offer is there today, waiting for your acceptance. There are no strings attached. It is free. All you need do is receive it by faith. If you're already forgiven, then be kind and compassionate and forgive your brothers and sisters their sins too. Remember Paul's words earlier in chapter 4? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Overlook smaller issues. Gently correct and admonish each other as Paul does. Remove the plank from your own eye before the speck in your brother's. Lovingly restore one another and follow biblical steps to seek repentance and, God willing, reconciliation. Perhaps read a good book like The Peacemaker or listen to the winter teaching series to address those challenges in greater depth. Offer forgiveness freely, generously, wholeheartedly, eagerly and kindly. Uh, Remember again Joseph's brothers, fearing that their brother held a grudge and and wanted to pay them back for their cruelty, they sent a fake message to Joseph from their just deceased dad, asking Joseph to forgive them. When Joseph received the message, he just wept and said, Don't be afraid, 
Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. He provided for them and their families. He spoke kindly to them because the truth is, Joseph had already granted them his forgiveness back when he tested the genuineness of their repentance. He had acknowledged that it was God's role to repay evil, not his. And so bitterness and resentment hadn't turned his life sour. So with the mighty power of the risen Christ alive in each one of us, let's be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other when we fall short, as we all will. Imitate God by loving your brothers and sisters with relational charity. Uh, I became a Christian many years ago. As a first-generation Christian, I've had and still have many rough edges on my character. One brother pulled me aside and rebuked me for complaining and a lack of thankfulness. I was deeply offended and responded, as you can imagine, in defensiveness. Who does this guy think he is? I thought at the time. He doesn't understand my situation and what I'm going through. It's not as if he doesn't have issues. But as I reflect back, he showed wonderful relational charity towards me. He admonished me privately, not in front of others. He spoke calmly and didn't raise his voice. He showed genuine grace in his assessment of the situation. He spoke the truth to build me up in love. And he was praying for me. One preacher said this, the man whose soul is growing is more full of love every year. Love to all men, but especially of love towards the brethren. His love will show itself actively in the growing disposition to do kindnesses, to take trouble for others, to be good-natured to everybody, to be generous, sympathizing, thoughtful, tender-hearted, and considerate. My family, my brothers and sisters, dearly loved children. God commands us today, walk in the way of love. Love with your mouth, love with your emotions, love with your hands, and love with your heart. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you dearly loved us when you sent your Son to die on the cross. Help us, like you, to love one another, to love one another with our words, to love one another with our anger, to love one another with our hands, and to love one another in the way we treat each other with charity. Help us to love one another just as you have loved us. Amen.